The Live Richly podcast is sponsored by Keystone Wealth Partners. For a complimentary retirement map review, visit keystonewealthpartners.com slash map. Welcome to Live Richly, a show where life meets money. Join John Hagenson as he shares practical insights to help you make better financial moves. John is a certified financial planner, holds a master's degree in financial services, and a professional certification from Stanford University. He is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisory firm that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. Welcome to the Live Richly podcast with John Hagenson. My goal is to meet you at the intersection of some of life's most important places so that together we can make progress. Isn't it interesting that we all have very similar goals, yet people have vastly different outcomes? And we've got the divisional round playoffs here in the NFL this weekend. Some really great matchups. There are only eight teams left. What happened to the other 24? Did they just start the season and hope to be the Detroit Lions? Or the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Houston Texans, just these perpetual losers that don't make the playoffs? Or did they start the year saying, we want to be the number one seed? We want to hoist Lombardi Trophy? We want to have a parade back in our hometown? Well, of course they did. Everyone wants to be successful. Some are, some aren't. Every business sets out to be profitable, but over half of all businesses fail within the first three years. At the altar, people get married and they read their vows for better or worse, sickness and health, till death do us part. Yet over half of all marriages end in divorce. Good intentions, great goals, but vastly different outcomes. And here's the summary of this big idea. Goals do not determine success. Systems determine success. Put it another way, your goals don't determine where you're going. Your habits determine that. James Clear, author of Atomic Habits, if you haven't read it, fantastic book. I've read it multiple times. My good friend, Brad, who's also a financial planner, gives this out to many of his clients because he feels like it's a practical way to truly improve their lives. Because as Clear says in his book, and I quote, you won't rise to the level of your goals, but rather you fall to the level of your systems. We think to ourselves, I need to change these results. I'm tired of not making the playoffs. I want to be the Packers or the Patriots. I want to be good year after year after year. Stop focusing on the outcomes, the playoff wins, the Super Bowls, but instead on the systems and processes that have made those organizations, or in this case, those that have personal finance success or business success or success in their marriage or parenting, what are the systems that they are adhering to? Because remember, change the systems that drive the results, change the habit that determine our direction, the outcomes will fix themselves. As leadership expert and megachurch pastor and founder of the Vision Bible app, Greg Groeschel says often, wildly successful people do consistently what others do occasionally. And so when it comes to your investment strategy, rather than saying, what did my accounts earn last year? How was my performance? Change the question and say, what is my system? What are the rules that I follow when it comes to building my investment portfolio? What guides me during a dot-com bubble bursting or a financial crisis or a global pandemic? We have three very simple rules at Keystone Wealth Partners when it comes to investing. And these aren't all that unique to us. I think these should be the rules for every investor across the country who wants to be a disciplined, rules-based, structured, systematized investor rather than a speculator and a trader and a gambler. 
buy equities, diversify those equities, rebalance. And if you want to throw a fourth rule in, repeat. Buy equities, diversify, and rebalance. Now, of course, like a lot of things in life, simple rules are not always easy to follow. The challenge isn't in creating the rules or understanding the rules or writing the rules down. It's in following them consistently over decades. Transitioning over to today's rule for money, often the best move is no move. Shay is still working on getting his driver's license. And I was explaining to Shay, when you approach an intersection and there's been a power outage, so you've got that flashing red light, you know, four-way stop, and on one crosswalk, you have a mother pushing a stroller, you have bikers waiting, drinking their water bottles out of a little holder on their 10-speed with the ridiculously narrow tires and their skin-tight road biking attire. That person's on the other corner. You have one car across from you that's flashers are on, but you think they meant to put their left blinker on. What do you do? You pause, you assess the situation, and you wait. You don't gas it through the intersection because you're confused and a little bit overwhelmed with all the variables that are occurring in the situation. You pause, you stop. The same is true with our money. Oftentimes, we mistake action for control. Well, if I do nothing... I'm extraordinarily vulnerable. If I do something, anything at all, regardless of whether it's prudent or consistent with my long-term goals, it might be directly opposed to those things. But there is an immediate dopamine hit that says, ah, I did something. I'm in control. In fact, Carl Richards said it best on the Kitsis and Carl podcast when he said, and I quote, sometimes advisors deserve to get paid for nothing when nothing is the right thing to do. And getting someone to do nothing can be really hard work. Let me say that again. Sometimes advisors deserve to get paid for nothing when nothing is the right thing to do. And getting someone to do nothing can be really hard work. Our verse of the day comes from Matthew 6.34 and it says, Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. If you're looking for certainty in life, you are going to be a very discontent, anxious person who lacks peace. If you are looking for certainty, around your investments, you're going to receive extraordinarily low returns. Because the very nature of attempting to achieve higher returns is a result of what we call in finance the risk premium. Risk and return are correlated. It's why a CD right now is losing 5% to inflation. It's why the 10-year treasury isn't above 2%. Because they're considered very low risk. You lend money to the government. They promise to pay it back over the next 10 years. They're only going to pay you 2% interest. Conversely, the stock market's made 8 to 12% a year for nearly 100 years. But for that, you don't see linear growth. You get corrections like we are moving into the territory of right now as I record. If you want to receive that approximate 10% historical rate of return, you're going to have a 14% correction on average every year. You'll only be up in value at all about 75% of the time from year to year. And you will have to endure plenty of sustained bear markets and even crashes where everyone around you says, you're crazy, the world is ending, why are you invested? Put it in something safe. It's why you see these steak dinner workshops where before the dessert hits the room, people are signing 16-year fixed annuity applications. And it doesn't matter that they're basically doing this at the bottom of the market when there's blood in the streets and they should be rebalancing and buying more of everything that's on sale. They leave the Ruth Chris parking lot and they take this deep breath and say, ah, finally I have certainty. And what they have provided is certainty of extraordinarily low returns, very little upside, and a huge lack of liquidity. 
So let me propose the alternative. Have contingencies within your financial plan under the assumption that there will be uncertainty. Just embrace the uncertainty. Just lean into it. Yep, I have no idea. And neither does my neighbor and neither does that professional money manager who 85% of the time loses to the given index. And neither does Jim Cramer on TV who said, bye, 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 as Lehman Brothers went down to zero. Hopefully you weren't listening. No one knows this. And you say, well, aren't there some people that are really smart? Oh, there are some brilliant people. But when something is unpredictable, it does not matter how intelligent you are. You cannot forecast it unless you are a psychic. Brittany was a wedding photographer for the first eight years of our marriage. People that get married in Arizona are not looking to get married inside of a building. They're getting married in a warm weather climate so that they can have an outdoor wedding in almost all cases, or at least an outdoor reception. But if they're terrified that there isn't 100% certainty that it won't rain, they will have to have an indoor reception and wedding whether they like it or not. The alternative is to say, here's the wedding of my dreams. I want it to be outside. There's all these weddings here in Agritopia in our neighborhood in the middle of this fruit orchard with bistro lights hanging down. It's unbelievable, beautiful, but there is a risk that it could rain. And so you use common sense and you say, well, you know, I'm not trying to get married in Minneapolis in January and then saying, well, I hope the weather's good and we can do this outside. We've got about a 95% chance that it will not rain. But if it does, you see the forecast three or four days prior to the wedding and you bring out those huge tents or you pivot to a covered venue site that maybe has breezeways and is partly outside, partly inside. You have some options, but you don't just say, well, because there's a 5% chance it could rain, I'm going to do it at this terrible venue rather than it being outside because I just don't have any certainty. Play the odds, use common sense when it comes to your money. Understand the risks that are there and what you will do in the event that those rear their head because they will from time to time. It's not going to rain zero days, even in the desert for the next six years straight. You know it's going to rain at some point and we know there are going to be bear markets and crashes and corrections. So have a plan for those things. Thought this was interesting regarding ARK Investments. So if you're unfamiliar, Kathy Wood, the manager of ARK Investments, is the poster child right now for hotshot money manager. In 2016, ARK managed $12 million. Tiny little fund. In 2020, they had inflows that at the time tripled. By the end of 2020, they reached $40 billion from 12 million in 2016. Now their performance was crazy. Their largest holdings were huge stakes in Tesla, crypto. I mean, their performance over doubled the QQQs in the NASDAQ 100. It was just off the charts. But pride comes before the fall. And we see this over and over. It's why it's so difficult to see one manager, whether it's Peter Lynch or Warren Buffett or Kathy Wood, that can consistently and predictably outperform. In 2021, they ran a commercial that basically ripped on financial advisors for buying index funds and diversifying their clients' investments. Saying, oh, you say active management doesn't work? <laughs> you don't know about ARC. Another executive at the firm was on a podcast and basically called value investors like Warren Buffett or the way that many financial advisors diversify out client portfolios, idiots. If you weren't all in on tech and growth, you didn't understand the future. Sounds a lot like the mantra from the late 90s before the NASDAQ dropped 81% during the dot-com bubble bursting. But predictably, even as smart as she is and as good as their performance had been, they're down 50% from their top. And that could be expected. Even while their performance since inception is still over 20% a year, not long ago, it was over 40% a year. But here is the practical lesson learned. 
the money-weighted return, not the time-weighted return, not the annualized return, the money-weighted return is negative. What does that mean? It means that money poured into this fund after it became noteworthy, after its performance was so phenomenal that they were being interviewed on every financial show that you couldn't go to Yahoo Finance or Morningstar or your E-Trade account and not read about how phenomenal ARK Investments was doing. Remember, they had flows that tripled in 2020. That was when all the high-flying growth stocks were going nuts. So the average dollar that went into this fund that had $40 billion at one point in it flowed in mostly after the great performance to be around for the 50% drop. It's just another lesson in investor behavior, greed and fear, and how they impact our decisions. Because in 2016, when ARK had $12 million, you couldn't even find the ticker. You'd never heard of Kathy Wood. So you weren't looking to sleeve a bunch of your portfolio into this active manager that had a minimal track record. I want to share with you my technical topic for the day, and that is on life settlements. Now, if you've listened to this show long enough, you know that I believe in a globally diversified, low-cost portfolio that's rebalanced over long periods of time. Because unless the world ends and thousands of the largest companies across the globe simultaneously stop producing goods and services, you know, 7 billion people all of a sudden don't need things. Well, in that case, the world's over and you don't care about your portfolio. So it significantly mitigates that catastrophic risk by basically buying the entire market. Now on the edges, on the peripheral, especially for higher net worth investors who are looking for diversification and maybe some of this illiquidity premiums that can exist by tying up your money more. And there may be some informational advantage in some of these private investments, meaning one private investment company may be significantly better at managing real estate than another. And that is very different than the public markets where insider knowledge is insider trading and you're Martha Stewart and you go to jail. Right? That's not the case in private investments. So access to the best deals first because of your historical track record can be significant. So life settlements are one of these types of alternative investments. Real estate investment trusts, private equity, venture capital, distressed debt, business development companies, hard money lending, the list goes on and on. And to quote Thomas Fuller, a wise man turns chance into good fortune. Here's how life settlements work because they're pretty interesting. 500,000 seniors lapse unneeded life insurance policies every year. And some savvy investors who this is appropriate for capture the full value of those policies. A life insurance settlement is the sale of a life insurance policy to a third party. It's usually an investor group as this segment has become a lot more regulated and securitized over the years. That group gives the client cash for their policy and in turn becomes the owner of the policy, pays the premiums if there are more due and receives the death benefit when the policy matures. Why would you do this if you are the policyholder? Well, you benefit because you're receiving substantially more in many cases than the surrender value if you just walked away from the policy and gave it back to the insurance company. According to a 2014 London Business School study, Americans who sold their unwanted life insurance policies collectively received more than four times the amount that they would have had they surrendered them to their life insurance companies. I've heard Peter Malouk, founder of Creative Planning, mention that they have a fund that people tend to receive eight to 12 times the surrender value in one of these managed life settlement funds. And so they're pretty interesting because if you're 70 and you've got a $3 million life insurance policy that you really no longer need because your kids are all grown, your retirement's taken care of, you don't really want to make the premiums. Well, if the surrender value's $250,000, 
but you can sell it to a group for say $1.2 million. That's a whole lot better. And that group that buys it for $1.2 million, yeah, they are rooting for you to die, which is a little bit morbid and cryptic if you think about it. But the sooner you die, the better their internal rate of return. But either way, they're going to receive the $3 million when in fact you do die at some point, which as humans, that's one thing that's certain. So people like this from an investment standpoint, those that are buying these policies or in these types of investments, because they're clearly not correlated to market movement. They're just actuarially based and you have a diversified portfolio of thousands of these contracts and you can have a somewhat predictable rate of return on your money. Now, you may have heard mixed messages on these and for good reason, because the genesis of this type of arrangement actually came out of the AIDS crisis where young men with AIDS would have these life insurance policies and they needed to in part cover their high medication costs. They'd sell these policies off. And of course, the story ends with really good news Medical advancements now have allowed those people to continue to live. In many cases, 40 years later, they're still alive, which basically bankrupt the person who bought the policy thinking they'd get paid off in a few years. But hey, that's a good thing. You lose money, people are still alive. But that initially, in a very unregulated environment, caused a lot of investors problems because from a monetary standpoint, it wasn't a good investment. And that's why now there's a lot more regulation around these and they're more diversified. They obviously have their own set of risks, and this wouldn't be something that I would advise as a central anchor to your investment strategy. But maybe something on the edges with bonds being less attractive than typical that can be a diversifier with low correlation. I want to conclude the podcast with two more ideas. And the first is this. I had a prospective client come through our retirement map review process, and I had asked them why they only owned United States stocks. They had no international exposure. And they said, well, John, I'm a conservative investor. International investing's too aggressive, too risky for me. According to Hartford Fund, since 1975, the outperformance cycle of US stocks over international has lasted an average of 7.8 years. Now we are beyond that. We're on borrowed time right now. Of course, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. With the United States market capitalization being just over 50%, what that means is nearly half of all traded securities do not fall within the United States. What that also means is we are the 800-pound gorilla in the United States. I mean, we're one country with 330 million people out of almost 8 billion, and we represent half of all the global market capitalization. We have some huge companies. Our GDP is through the roof. But although we are in a global economy and international positions aren't necessarily going to move in a non-correlated fashion to U.S. stocks, like there is some correlation between the two, you should expect to receive some dissimilar price movement. The other thing is, although we're American elitists, our markets are usually not the best. Let me provide you the last 20 years and share with you the number one country by equity performance since the year 2001 going through the end of 2020. 2001, New Zealand, mate. I got you, Justin. My brother-in-law's a Kiwi. He's going to love this. 2002, New Zealand. 2003, Sweden. 2004, Austria. 2005, Canada. 2006, Spain. 2007, Finland. 2008, Japan. 2009, Norway. 2010, Sweden. 2011, Ireland. 2012, Belgium. 2013, Finland. 2014, ding, 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 ding. The United States of America was the number one country in 2014. And if you're wondering, by the way, the US was third, never second, but third four other times. It's the best it did. Oftentimes it was right in the middle quartile or even at the bottom compared to other equity markets. 2015, Denmark. 16, Canada, 17, Austria, 18, Finland, 2019, good day, mate, New Zealand, and 2020, 
Denmark. If you can receive similar expected returns with more securities in total, more diversification, in turn mitigating certain risks that are isolated specifically to the United States, a country in which you also live, which creates even less diversification for you, then that's a good thing. Not to mention, if you just look at historical valuations of price to earnings, foreign stocks are valued right now cheaper than their United States counterparts. And here's my final thought. Sometimes things are just too easy, aren't they? They give us this false sense that this isn't hard. I think a lot of the Robinhood traders felt like that in 2020. Coming out of the COVID crash for the next 12 months, 96% of stocks in the Wilshire 5000 were up in value, according to Jason Zweig, who writes for the Wall Street Journal. 96%. Basically, you threw a dart. You had to be horrible. You had to be that person at the bar that after too many beers doesn't even hit the electric dartboard. You know, they're like hitting the wall. Not even putting it anywhere on the board. That's what you had to be as a stock picker to not make money. 96% of individual stocks were up in value. This is not normal. 13% of stocks finished down in 2021. Another phenomenal year. And here's what made 2021 really unique. The largest drawdown was 5%. Typical corrections, 14 in a given year. 5% was the most extreme that we saw, meaning there was not a lot of uncertainty, not a lot of fear, not a lot of, oh no, I'm looking at my statement, my investments are way down. It's not usually this easy. On average, about a third of all stocks are down. That's why the market on average makes money. I mean, think about how challenging it is usually to invest in individual stocks. Amazon fell 95% during the dot-com bubble. Netflix has been down over 70% twice. Citigroup and AIG are still down 90% from all-time highs. And so you can't just buy the dips that would have worked out with an Amazon or an Apple, which is up 1,200% the last 10 years, but also had seven double-digit drawdowns. Because for every purchase low on an Apple that comes back, you're buying into Enron or Bank of America in 2008 or Chrysler. Even the best stocks get hammered. That's why it's so tough over long periods of time to be an effective stock trader because there are plenty of books on when you should buy stocks and how to buy stocks, but good luck figuring out when to sell. And so here's my parting words for 2022. The key for this year is going to be restraint. Inflation's high, interest rates are low. Fed's already mentioned they're going to provide an estimated three rate hikes. Now, we all know they change their mind constantly, but that's what they're saying. COVID doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I've got friends who are triple vaxxed who have their punch card out ready to get all their booster shots, and they've all got Omicron. Every investor wants good ideas. Give me the next Google, find me the next Tesla. But to circle back to the top of the pod, what we need as investors more than good ideas are good habits. Investing successfully over a lifetime is much more a function of great habits than good ideas. And if you found this podcast helpful, please leave us a review or share it on social media. That helps us get discovered. And before acting upon anything discussed today, speak with a financial advisor near you. And if you're not sure where to turn and would like our help, visit us anytime at keystonewealthpartners.com for a complimentary retirement map review. And remember, we are the wealthiest society in the history of planet Earth. Let's make our money matter. John is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisor that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. All opinions expressed by John or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Keystone Wealth Partners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Keystone Wealth Partners may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.